the Second World War, a podcast by Stephen Bedard. Well, I'm excited for this episode to have a special guest. I'm going to be talking to John Livens, who is the author of An Unexpected Journey. And I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, John. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Could you tell us uh, just a little bit uh, about yourself? We're going to get into some of the some more details about the book, but just to tell us uh, a bit of, of who you are uh, right now. Right. It's, it's a little complicated story, but I will try to compress it. I was born in uh, Latvia, which is a small country across from Sweden and between and borders on, on, on Russia and uh, in the south on Lithuania and north of Estonia. And uh, when World War II started just before, the life situation there was completely changed because the Soviets took over the country in uh, 1941. So I lived uh, under the Soviet occupation for about a year and it was uh, not a very pleasant experience. The only thing I could mention to you at age seven, I was on the KGB wanted list, but my sister was five. So the whole family was fortunately, except for my father, all of us survived. And then of course we were there during the German occupation when the Germans draw out the Soviets. And then eventually we escaped by ship to Germany before the war ended. And we were in Germany and actually Czechoslovakia and then Czechoslovakia got taken over by the communists. So we had another escape back to Germany. And then we came to the United States and, you know, had a satisfying and happy life here. I was very fortunate to get good education, a couple of degrees from Harvard, and also served in the U.S. Navy flying from several aircraft carriers. Oh, very nice. What was it that made you want to uh, write down your story and to share it with others? Well, that's, that's an interesting story because I am a very private person. And as a matter of fact, I didn't talk about my past to many people before because, number one, they wouldn't understand and couldn't relate it because, as you well know, after World War II in the United States, Stalin was viewed as a friendly Joe. And, you know, so the people really did not have the understanding. So as I retired and worked left less, my wife encouraged to, to, to do this, to write down. And I started writing in a chronological manner. I had some notes, not many. But then uh, the hardest part for me was I felt that everyone can write a chronology or a history, but I wanted to incorporate how I felt about these events. What did I learn? What perhaps they meant to me? and what perhaps they could mean to others. And that was a more difficult part. So it's sort of a personal story, uh, not only historical, but perhaps you can reflect in your own life and learn something and appreciate how well all of us are living here. Mm. Well, I, I really did enjoy your book and there's so many good stories in there and you have a very good um, ability to, to express uh, ex express those feelings and, and what was going on inside you. Uh, one of the, the stories that I really liked is uh, how you were learning. Uh, you were starting to learn German, but you didn't like the grammar. And so you stopped, stopped your lessons. But then you realized that there were uh, updates taking place in the house 
that were in German. And the only way you're going to know what was going on was to be able to understand German, even though you didn't want to speak it. <laughs> I thought that was that that was that, something that I think a, a lot of young people maybe could uh, could identify with those kind of motivations. Well, I think the key thing is, uh, I think you have to be adapt yourself. And if you have the ability and most people have it, you evaluate the circumstances and some things that do not look good at first, you can derive benefit and it's worth taking the effort to overcome them. Mm-hmm. Yes, wonderful. Now, uh, the first part of your book takes place in Latvia. And I think that uh, a lot of people are not really familiar with that country. Can you kind of uh, position us? Uh, you, you've already told us where it was uh, geographically. Um, what was Latvia like uh, culturally? What kind of relations did it have with other countries around it? Well, I will give you a very brief summary uh, and history of it. And I just have to say that I'm reasonably current what's going on because I was in Paris uh, about a month ago and I spent, I sat next to dinner to the former president of Latvia. She was a president for two terms and we discussed some of the issues of the past. But uh, just to give a brief history, the country is in Northern Europe and of course, Northeast Europe. So it's bordered by Russia, but uh, it was, uh, you may say, Christianized by German monks in the 1200s. And the interesting thing is it's somewhat com- comparable to the modern day Vietnam. So the monks come to this country, which is populated in their opinion by heathens and they bring Christianity. They want to convert them. And of course, it's not easy to do. And they did the same thing then, but we did in Vietnam, build up forts and try to convert the chiefs. <laughs> so they, they did succeed that way. And one of my ancestors was the early converts to Christianity. And uh, as a matter of fact, he was granted an audience at Pope Innocent III in 1200s. But anyway, so the country was ruled by um, bishops, by Germans, the Baltic Germans really controlled it. And then it was part of a Swedish empire for hundred years. And then it was a vassal state of Poland. And then it, uh, after the great Northern war in 1700s, it became part of Imperial Russia, but they always maintained uh, the ethnicity of the people because the Baltic people, the Latvians and Lithuanians are ethnically different from the Slavs. They were three tribes, essentially. The old Prussians, which were squished by the Germans and the two Baltic tribes, the Lithuanians and Latvians. So it's an entirely different language and ethnic um, roots. So they always strove for independence, but they only achieved it first time in 1918. And then they were independent until 1941 when the Soviets took over. And then they became independent again in uh, 1992 when Gorbachev's Russia fell apart. So it's been an independent republic uh, since then. The government's been always right of center, very pro-American, even though they have a significant Russian minority. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned about the, the Soviet takeover, and that was part of uh, larger events that were taking place Correct. in Europe at that time, that uh, Germany was invading Poland, and they had an uh, arrangement with the Soviets that the Soviets would... Uh, as the Germans uh, received the Western part, the, um, the Soviets would receive the Eastern part. 
And it was uh, part of, of these events then that the the Soviets moved into the uh, the Baltic states. Is that correct? Yes. What happened is, as you all uh, will remember from history, there was a Ribbentrop-Molotov treaty, which uh, basically the Nazi Germans and the communists divided Europe. And then uh, after the treaty was concluded, there was a secret clause. And the secret clause of the treaty said that uh, the Soviets could take over Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania. And of course, Germans could occupy the larger part of Poland. The other part of the clause, which was not known at that time, that Hitler had the opportunity to issue a proclamation that any people claiming of German descent in these countries could go back to Germany. So you had an outflux of uh, Germans. Uh, some of them were not really Germans, people actually of Latvian descent. Uh, you can always have some connection with the Germans. And about 2% of the population left. The rest, of course, didn't know what happened. So first the Soviets established the base, and then one day they just rolled their tanks in and took over the country. And uh, the next step, what they did is, of course, this is not unusual for Soviets, they realized that the uh, intelligentsia of the country was opposed to Soviets because they were proud of their country. And, and they arrested some of the leaders first, and then one night um, they arrested about 15,500 people, which doesn't look like a big number, but it was a good part of the population since the population was a little over 2 million and deported them to Siberia. So they rounded them up, uh, put them into cattle cart and shipped off to Siberia. Very few returned. Mm -hmm. And, and my, connection with, uh, my connection with this is if you are interested in the book, uh, and I think it is an interesting turning point uh, we had a townhouse uh, and as well as country places. And so we had called the superintendent of the townhouse. My mother called him and said, look, we're going to visit our father, my father, who was living in town, who had been dismissed from his government job. And so we told the superintendent, would you please help to get the house ready? Because my mother said, I'm arriving with two children and all that. And he said, fine. Well, what we did not know, of course, many of the superintendents were secret informers for the KGB. So, of course, he had informed KGB and say felt that the whole family is going to be on the June 14th in, at their townhouse and they could be arrested and shipped to Siberia. Well, of course, we didn't know that. The night before we were supposed to leave, my grandmother, who had diabetes, said, to my mother, please do not leave the next morning. Please do not leave. I want you to stay another night. I want to stay another night. So, you know, it was kind of an unusual event, I suppose, divine interference, you may call. So my mother said, all right, we'll leave the next morning. So the next morning she called my father. I was walked in her room, it was about five o'clock or so in the morning because I heard the noise. And as she did call the father, he didn't answer. There was a borderer put in the house he answered and he said you know something is going on and so obviously my mother understood that, that they were police or something and she handed the receiver to my father my father said take care of the children do what you can and my mother immediately understood that he's being arrested and shipped to Siberia and so the phone conversation terminated and she took off for one city and we got shipped to another place so the KGB wouldn't get us because they were not 
that rapid. They didn't took them a while to figure out where we were. Mm. So we had to hide with different people. And the only thing that saved us that about 10 days later, uh, Germans attacked Russia. And of course, then they shortly afterwards, they came in Latvia and we could return. But we were hiding for about 12 to 10. Well, from uh, June 14th till about uh, June 25th or 6th. So. Mm-hmm. And so I want I was, to get to the, the, German, uh, the German occupation in a moment, but uh, in, for the Soviets, what their intentions were, uh, it wasn't just to have uh, political control. It was also, there was a sort of a conflict of ideologies going right. on uh, and the desire to spread communism. And, um, and so I, in, in your book, you talk about how uh, there would be comments uh, about how uh, the possessions of the rich uh, mm-hmm. were, were, were to be taken away. And, and uh, uh, there was a real desire to, to turn everything upside down and, and, and impose that uh, communist ideology in Latvia. Is that correct? Yes. And the interesting part is, I think the, the, those people who are interested about education today, they should read that chapter because the communists early on realized that the current generation is probably lost the way they achieve success of their ideology, indoctrinate young children at school. So that was a very important thing in school. Uh, there was a red corner and, and I, I still to this day remember one thing that the heroes were children who reported their parents for counter-revolutionary activities. So in other words, the state was more important than the family and the parental relationships. So, so it was, a, I, I grasped something that was something bad, but you know, I was what, eight, nine years old, but you know, it was not a pleasant situation. My parents took me out of the school most of the time under pretext that I had health issues. Mm. Okay. Well, in the midst of that, as you mentioned, the uh, Germans uh, begin their attack on the Soviet Union. And part of that would include going through the, the Baltic countries and, and uh, Latvia. And so how did the people of Latvia see the, the German occupation, at least in, in the earliest, uh, earliest moments of that? Well, uh, first of all, uh, you know, this is, again, not widely understood, but some people are getting uh, some understanding it, that the communists had, had done such a horrible job by killing so many people that any change from communism was welcomed. So initially, the reaction to the Germans were positive. And I think the same thing, actually, believe it or not, was in Ukraine in 1941, because as you well know, the Ukrainians have been starved and suppressed by Stalin. I think in the 1930s, about two and a half million Ukrainians starved to death. But afterwards, the Germans put in their functionaries in the government and, and their idea was, well, look, uh, this originally was settled by the German monks uh, centuries ago. Maybe this should be the German territory again and they were basically putting quotas that people in the farms had to give them food. And I think their long range plan probably was to colonize with Germans, but we were not exposed to much. But basically, uh, I think they were 
using as a source of food uh, and, uh, you know, just to support their army. Mm. So the choice that the people had in the German occupation was really very limited. And I refer to this in my book briefly. Number one, there was an opposition. Yes. What was the opposition? The opposition was communists. Did you want to have communists back that killed 3% of the population in one year? Obviously, most people didn't. Uh, what's the other one? Independence, uh, family friend um, who was the grandson, actually the son of the first president of Latvia felt that he was a good friend of my mother's and classmates that they should strive for independence and cooperate with the allies. Well, the allies were not interested in that. They were interested in cooperating with Germans. So poor guy, they found out uh, uh, his activities and he got put in a German concentration camp. So there's really no option. Mm -hmm. So you probably just lie low and think about your own survival. And, you know, the other thing, you have to be very fair. The Allies had completely neglected that area. I mean, they were interested in cooperating with the Russians. This episode will return after a quick break. I was recently introduced to Athletic Greens. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. And it contains less than one gram of sugar. No GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting good. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health. And it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. It's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And uh, I know in, in general on the Eastern Front, in, in some areas, uh, the, uh, the Germans were very uh, aggressive towards civilians. Of course, they, they were rounding up Jews and other minority groups, but um, ultimately Hitler's plan was to create living space for, right. for Germans to to yeah. live in right. the east uh, it seems as if um uh the experience in, in the uh in the baltic countries was not quite as severe as some of the other places do you think that might have been uh maybe some german uh ethnic views of the slavic people versus uh uh the baltic countries uh, that might have played a role because, you see, this interesting part is I lived in the countryside as a child. I don't think I met a Jewish person until I was 15. Mm. So uh, they were mostly in the urban areas. Now, uh, the irony of this is 
that some of the more successful and prosperous Jewish people also suffered under communists. They were deported too. So there was a kind of a, uh, we heard, you know, that there were people arrested, as you said, from ethnic groups and Jewish people, but we just heard it because I was not in the city. I didn't know much, but subsequently, obviously the history record shows that the Germans did round up Jewish people in Latvia, as well as um, in the surrounding Baltic countries. The minority of Jewish people was a little higher in Lithuania, and certainly very high in Poland. I think it's a terrible thing what they did, but you know, when you're fighting for your own survival, you hear all kinds of rumors and you know that only you find the facts much later on. Mm -hmm. The Germans handled the propaganda pretty well, I'd say that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, in your book, you t uh, share one story of how your mother was uh, having a visit with some uh, some German officers and they were asking yeah. questions and uh, it uh, um, w whether there was any still some communist uh, sympathizers around and uh, Hey, could you tell us a little bit of, of how that story unfolded? Well, that, that, that story is, I found it fascinating now, if I look it back. Uh, my mother spoke perfect German because she was also educated at Heidelberg University, and she spoke five other languages, four other languages besides German and Latvian. And uh, so the transportation system was pretty bad, and some of the Germans were fairly cooperative. So uh, she was trying to come back from the capital to our house, and somebody suggested, well, there are these German officers driving past. They, they could give her a ride and drop her off. So that was, she accepted that. And, you know, we had met German soldiers before. They were mostly Wehrmacht. I saw these people drive up with this Mercedes, and they sure looked different. They were black uniforms, shining boots, big Mercedes, and the chauffeur jumped out. And my mother kind of said, well, why don't you come and have tea and thank you for the ride? So they come in and have tea and I was sitting there and, and listening in because I knew some German and uh, they were clicking their heels when they met my grandmother and said toward the end, they said, um, tell us what, how it was during the communist time. And my mother said, well, the, the state was taken over by uh, the communists and, you know, they had a tractor school and all this. And they kept saying, how terrible, how terrible. So one of them said, are there any of these people left? And my mother said, no, most of them escaped, except the technical director uh, of the school is still here. He's charged the machine shop. Well, one of the Germans said, um, after we finished the tea, uh, how terrible the situation is. We're going to shoot the guy because he's a communist. My mother said, no, <laughs> you know, he's essential. Uh, we would like, uh, and she tried to talk him out. So finally she convinced him saying, well, look, uh, he's essential to keep the machine shop going so we can supply the food to the war effort and all this. And so the German officer said, all right, madam, we've been your guests, we'll honor your wishes, and then departed. After that, my mother never accepted ride for many Germans <laughs> because these guys were not the regular army. They were SD, which is the security part of the SS. So they were probably out hunting for communists or something. Mm -hmm. So life was pretty cheap then. Mm -hmm. I think that this is one of the, the things that people don't realize is that there were different arms of uh, the German military 
and the the, the culture within them w- was different. Uh, some people, I think, maybe based on movies, assume that every German soldier was a monster uh, who was ready to to kill any innocent at a moment's notice. When that really was was not the case. Uh, I knew a, a family uh, from Holland. And they were there during the the occupation, and they shared stories of yes, there was there was uh, German um, uh, violence against civilians, but there was plenty of times that were they shared uh, what little they had, and they there were acts of compassion by the Germans as well uh, that they weren't all all monsters. What was what was your impression aside from the this uh, this party of SDs? Uh, did you see the the Germans as being uh, a an acceptable presence in in your community? Well, I think um, I remember the first uh, exposure to this was when my parents, when the country was still independent, the war was starting, and and my father was talking to his friends, and they had traveled a great deal to Europe and lived there some time, and I think what he said that. They, had, they did not like Hitler, and they said, Hitler does not represent the best of Germany, and they could not understand how Germans, being highly educated and cultural people, could select him as his leader. So I think that was probably the perception of my parents. But uh, my other observation was we had another German officer quartered on and off, and he was a vet. <laughs> his responsibility was to collect horses for the army, because I think many people don't know, they think that the German army was motorized, not at all, three quarters of transportation was by horses. So he was in our house collecting horses. And so we tried to be terribly nice to him because we wanted to save our own horses. And, you know, he was a kind of easygoing guy as people in the medical professions are. And it, then it kind of, we learned he was a Bavarian. And he really didn't like the war. He couldn't talk much about it. But he says, you know, I had to work with the Prussians. <laughs> so put up with the war. So mm-hmm. I think there's a, you know, it boils down to the individuals. And I think one of the things about the Germans is that they were very careful to express their views to outsiders because that was, you know, no, no for the Nazi party and their military careers. But there was a great difference between the Austrians and the Bavarians and the typical German military people. Hmm. And so this is, this German occupation is, is taking place. And then uh, the, at, at one point, the, the German uh, advance into the Soviet Union is stopped and then it is turned around. And now that the Soviets are on their way, um, describe for us what that was like as you're hearing rumors that the, the Soviets are, are coming back. Well, uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, no one knew what was going to happen initially when the Germans advanced. It looked like a German victory and people were hoping peace or some kind of thing. And then we started learning that the German front really collapsed. Well, you know, in times of stress, you said, oh, this is not going to happen. Things are going to continue. The front was away about 150 miles. And then uh, during the summer of 1904, uh, the Soviets started this operation Bagradian, uh, and it virtually collapsed the central German front. The northern part held out as did the southern. Uh, 
And within a matter of weeks, uh, the Russians broke through. There was no resistance. And, and I was playing in the fields one day, you know, we heard front was away 50 miles. We could see some smoke there. And suddenly the tanks had broken through. And I was, my parents were told that the tanks are only about 15 miles away and we had to get out. So that things changed so suddenly. So we threw everything in a couple of carts and took off ahead of the supposedly Russian troops. And we headed to my stepfather's house, which was some distance away. And uh, we, in, in the middle of the trip, we were going to meet my stepfather's uh, uh, cart from his farm so we could load the bags. And the person who, uh, one of the persons who was driving back our horses was a former Russian POW. And I never forgotten that. And he had worked for us. Two of them had worked for us for about three years, which is much better than being at POW camp. And as we were leaving uh, and transferred our baggage to the other car, that former POW, his name was Timofey, hugged my mother and said, may the good Lord protect you and save you for a better life. That's kind of unusual expression from the Russian Soviet former POW. And so then we transferred to my stepfather's house, which we did not realize was much closer to the Russians. And we packed up our bags and we had to get out of there. And we left there at four o'clock and I think uh, in the morning and uh, three hours later, the Soviets were there and they caught some of the refugees and shot them. So also Timofey was, was shot by the Russians because he felt the Russian, the Soviets felt that any POW was disloyal. So it's very sad. Yeah. I, I can't imagine being a, uh a Russian POW because there's, there really is, is no hope. You, exactly. you can't escape with the Germans. You can't exactly. go back to the, the Russians. And so that's, it's a hopeless situation. Yeah. And so they, they, uh, they come back and, uh, and, and things um, return uh, to um, to uh, some difficult uh, moments again. Well, what happened is so we we got out of the we got out of uh, the house and uh, traveled about fifty miles further west, and then the Germans brought in reinforcements. Uh, uh, they brought in uh, one of their elite division, which I'm sure you're familiar, Grossdeutschland, and uh, and then of course the famous tank leader was called. Uh, there's a book by him uh, about him, the Devil's General, Graf Strafovitz. And, and they made an attack on the Russians and dislodged them. So then we could return to our houses. And they had been under Soviet occupation for about a month and a half. And so we looked at the place the way it was again. So, mm. And then we were there for another month or so. And the front was away about five, five, five miles away. And then afterwards, we realized when the next Soviet offensive started, which was, I think, October 17th, 1944. We better get out. <laughs> they couldn't hold it too long. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, the fighting there was very fierce, just to give you a reference point. Uh, in 1944, originally, uh, the Russians had surrounded these German troops. There were about a half a million Germans, probably close to two million, million and a half Soviet troops. Uh, then toward the end, as a pocket shrunk, uh, the Germans were down to 300,000, 200,000. 
And uh, eventually, before the war end, uh, in, in early, uh, it would be in May in 1945, they were down to about 250,000 troops. But the Russians never could crush that pocket. And the Russian intent was, Stalin's strategy was to crush this pocket, then deploy the extra 2 million troops or whatever they had to Berlin. Hitler's general staff recommended withdrawal from Courland. That's how the area was called. And they said, you have to withdraw the troops from Courland and redeploy to defend Germany. Hitler said no. And the reason why he said no, he had the grand illusion that this would be base for a further advancement in Russia. Now, if Hitler had listened to his general staff, the Germans would have withdrawn and I would have been left behind. <laughs> why did this happen? I don't know. Mm, wow. Wow. Well, I think I'd like to uh, to leave it there and and point people towards the, the book, An Unexpected Well, I'd like to journey. show it to you. Here it is. There it is. Yes, it is. It is very good and definitely would recommend people pick that up. Do you have a website that people could go to? No, I don't. I, I tell you this, if you don't want to read the book and don't have the time, my suggestion is look at the cover, which you see now, and read the reviews in Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, and there are a lot of reviews. And the other thing is, if you want to have some additional information, I even have my email address in the back, which is very simple. It says hello at John H. Livens, L-I-V-E-N-S dot com. Okay. If you have any any questions, be delighted to answer. But I, I think I'll read the summary, not the summary, the key that the editor said. And I don't know whether how meaning is that to you, but... I open, put my glasses and read, and, and this is the, what the editor pulled out. My life shows that we as humans cannot always change or control our circumstances. We cannot anticipate all the obstacles in our path. We can, however, choose our attitude, our actions, and how to overcome the obstacles. This will define our character, values, and faith. So. Well, that's an excellent way to conclude this this time together thank you so much john for your your time i have enjoyed talking with you and and hearing your stories well i would also like to add that you're one of the few people who has an understanding what went on there they don't really understand the dynamics of the different german troops and the different political moves so it was a real pleasure for me